are listening to another episode of the Niagara Moon Podcast. I'm Thomas Irwin. Uh, you just heard a snippet from one of the songs from our most recent album, Fuzzy Thinking. If you want to hear the whole thing, that is uh, available for mailing list people only. You can check out the link I posted in the show notes and uh, go from there. Hope you uh, enjoy checking all that out. I have a very, very cool guest for this week's episode. It was really nice to uh, get all set up in my new home studio after a big move. We're finally in our new apartment and uh, we're getting getting a lot of stuff going again. And I talked to somebody very interesting, very funny, very personable. Um, it was a real treat to have him on, Joseph Shabison from Toronto, Canada. And he does so much. I, I'm trying to think how to sum up all the... Um, things he has going on, but he is primarily a saxophonist, a keyboardist, and a composer. He has scored for films. He's been a, or he is a core member of the synth pop band Diana. He's contributed saxophone parts to a whole host of notable indie bands like uh, Dan Bejar's band Destroyer, The War on Drugs, Born Ruffian, and, uh, Kind of at the top of the stack is his solo work. He's released two albums and an EP under his own name containing a really original and kind of unique blend of uh, ambient and new jazz. It's just really beautifully orchestrated, lush, uh, instrumental soundscapes um, that, do, that do have some jazz influence in there. But uh, his most recent album, the 2018 release, Anne, explores issues of uh, degenerative illness, um, specifically his mother having Parkinson's disease. It was closely followed by a uh, sort of supplementary EP, Anne EP, and uh, later on I'm going to play a song from that, but uh, let's just get into the conversation. <laughs> How are, you, how are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm holding up okay. How about yourself? I'm okay. <laughs> I uh, I have a two year old, so it's uh, it's fucked, but it's okay. <laughs> I I mean that yeah that probably dominates the whole tone of the uh, the the lockdown for you. Yeah, like I'm certainly not making any sourdough. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> no pottery. <laughs> No, like it's it's purely like my wife and I trying to figure out times to like both find time to work and then if we're not doing that we're taking care of Louie and then if we're not doing that we're just crash the fuck out, you know, or trying to like make music and keep creative and all that sort of stuff, but it's it's definitely been a time. How how are you? I I've been pretty good. The um the only kind of annoying thing so far is uh we we ended up moving apartments last week uh, so the and to a town nearby and you know families around and it definitely could be a lot harder than it was but uh where are you from again so i'm in massachusetts uh, oh, western okay. massachusetts so kind of more rural a lot of college towns it's very uh, quirky and kind of off the beaten path but definitely has a lot of artists and a pretty kind of local community that's pretty strong i'd say what made you move there so I grew up in this area. I've lived in a couple 
of other places. Like uh, I studied Japanese and lived in Japan for a few years, and then my partner and I were oh, in cool. Seattle for a bit. But uh, yeah, it's just it's too nice an area with um, you know just friends and family, and it's uh, it's just a very easy place to live and still be creative. Right on. So it's hard to give it up. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah. Um, are you from Toronto yourself, or uh, I'm from? Um, sorry, I'm just making sure my compressor is not overly compressing this. I think we're good. Get the, uh, the settings I'm, correct. <laughs> the settings are correct. I'm from an area maybe 45 minutes outside of um, Toronto called Caledon. So it like it's very much like rolling hills and horse farms and yeah like countryside so i grew up out there and i'd come into toronto every week for music lessons um but i i mean i've been living here for the last 20 years i mean it's it's where it's really happening as far as eastern canada goes i imagine i mean either that or montreal for music my yeah i mean it's it's one of those for music it's it's amazing like i think you know Montreal is incredible because it's an incredible city period and then it's really cheap but it's hard to work in Montreal if you don't speak French it's like you have to be able to speak French if like legally to work there so like a lot of musicians will live there who can like make a living just doing music being in bands or they have some side hustle that's online but for like just doing music I think you know Toronto is one of the few places in Canada where you can kind of make a living, where there's lots of opportunity to do lots of different things. You know, like I'll write music for movies and TV and ads and that sort of stuff and then do session work. And yeah, it's great. Like, I I love it here. And the community here, like the, the musical community here, I just like, it's bonkers. Like, I feel so lucky to like have the players that I'm able to play with here is just out of this world. I, I picture it as kind of, uh, you know, t- Toronto's New York to uh, Vancouver's Los Angeles, maybe. It's kind of one creative hub or the yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, but, so, I mean, it's sort of like that in certain ways, certainly, like, geographically, but I think, and maybe, like, the, the mood or, like, the way the cities feel, but Los Angeles and New York, you know, like, the opportunity out there is wild. Like, there's just things happening constantly, whereas Vancouver, while gorgeous and beautiful is a lot more difficult to sort of make your way in as a musician out there like Mm. it's there's just I mean there's this thing in Canada called western alienation that I was only actually made aware of by the friends of mine in Destroyer who I play with who are all from out there they're basically they just said you know like all of the major labels in Canada for the most part are in Ontario. All of the major mm. granting organizations are in Ontario. So it's like as as you kind of fan out towards the west, you see how little like you basically see this concentration of things getting funded in Toronto and then it just gets more and more sparse. So I think it's like mm. it it's tougher to make your way in Vancouver, but people do it and it's gorgeous out there. It's just um yeah, harder. Interesting. That's that's cool to hear that, especially in Ontario, you have so much art that's really kind of sponsored or supported by the state. That's such a... Oh, dude. To me, just here in Massachusetts, that's I guess we might have some local or like town level stuff going on, but that's just such a, just a lovely idea to me. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. Like, 
you know, my last record and I just got a whole bunch of grants recently. And look, okay, it's crazy. Like, they, you'll put together a pr proposal and it's fucking weird. Like, not particularly commercially viable. Mm -hmm. And you just say, like, this is what I want to do. And I think, you know, they're really good about um, funding projects that, like, it's not just like, hey, I'm a 38-year-old white guy making, like, indie rock fund me. I think, like, they very much fund priority groups. You know, they fund women a lot and people of color, but then also, like, projects that sort of touch on different groups outside of maybe your own sphere. And, like, you know, a lot of my projects involve, like, sort of working with um, people in this like communities with degenerative illness. And like, yeah. I think as long as you have a proposal that sort of is broad reaching and like brings people together and also they enjoy your music, like they really are unbelievably supportive. And then, and now just like, there was no pressure. It was just like, Hey, I'm going to write some songs. That is it. And they were like, uh. okay, great. Here's a bunch of money. And then labels in here in Canada, if you like, a lot of them have grant funding as well. So like, it means that, artists get 75% of all of their expenses paid for. So they only have to, like the label and the artist have to recoup 25%, which means that you can make money sooner. So like they really do, like they really do help musicians out and dancers and visual artists. Like it's, it's pretty special. Yeah. It's, it sounds quite utopian. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's problems too, believe me. Yeah. But, yeah nothing's that easy or straightforward. Yeah. But, but it's good. Like I'm, I'm eternally grateful for it. It really, like, it just, it's enabled so much in the last bunch of years. And, like, I really, I don't think, like, without granting organizations, I don't know if I'd be where I am now, for mm. sure. Wow, it's really interesting to, to think of that, mm -hmm. think that way. Um, Are you a musician, too, by the way? Or yeah, I, I do music a whole lot. Um, my main project is uh i go by niagara moon and it's kind of like uh mostly solo indie pop i mean it's it's kind of tied mm -hmm. to like bedroom pop but um lots of beatles influence cool. in there i go i try to go grand with the kind of a really restricted setup i guess is the idea cool. lots of chord progressions um awesome I do a little bit Speaking of my language yeah yeah um do a little bit of ambient piano as a side project as well but i'm very keyboards and very uh, yeah melody and, and harmony driven. Right on, that's very cool. Yeah, I could I could use some some grants myself sometimes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's um, yeah. I just I, I try to do it in a way that's fun for me and kind of suits my my lifestyle. And um, yeah, stuff like this podcast is just kind of tacked onto that. Like whatever is kind of fun for me, kind of creatively or artistically, and that I can kind of engage an audience with. So. I don't know, figuring stuff out along the way. That's rad. Do you also like do you do music full time or is it sort of like a hobby? Yeah, it's um certainly from a time usage perspective, it's 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 a hobby and I'm kind of um you know, the the question of if I tried to make it full time and what would that look like and is is that an arrangement that really would work out better for me? And I'm like, uh you know, if I two things. If I got it to the point where it's paying for itself like, you know, forget profit, just like if, if it's break even and, um, you know, if I, if I can consistently communicate with my audience and engage them and know that I can grow that on some level and, you know, 
there's kind of a symbiosis thing happening with uh, the music that I continue to produce. Both those things mm-hmm. would feel pretty cool. I don't need to tour a whole lot. I don't need to to try to make the the big bucks, which is in branding and and uh, merchandise and several other nebulous I mean, things. Anyway, it's such a weird one. Like, you know, the amount of musicians that I know who make a living just doing original music, including myself. Like, I I don't like I don't that, make it. It doesn't really exist anymore as a model. Just original music. No. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it it might exist for a year or two, and then you have an album that doesn't do very yeah. well. So it's like, I feel like the only piece I've found in my life is to not count on original music for anything. And then in doing that, there's been this sort of release of pressure where it's like, oh, like, I can do other things that are musical to make a living, whether that be scoring yeah. movies, TV, ads, podcasts, whatever. Like, I'm writing, I'm doing something, but it's like, it's not original music and I'm not touring. And that allows me the freedom to not have to make weird musical decisions or financial decisions tied to original music. And yeah, there's a real freedom in that because, like, as soon as you start relying on um, original music for your living, like, oh man the pressure just goes through the fucking roof. Like it's, and it, you have to do weird ass <laughs> things. It takes a certain kind of personality to, to really pursue that and, and follow through with that only. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually, you know what? There's lots of different types of people, but I certainly like maybe if the opportunity presented itself, I might consider it. But honestly, the idea of doing that is terrifying to me. Yeah. No, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I think that's what you're describing is almost kind of that, that it also depends on what you want and who you are, but the, the healthiest way is, you know, don't put all the eggs in one basket. And um, as long as you're doing yeah. something that is kind of stimulating or fulfilling on whatever level, I mean, just kind of gauge what's out there. And, and the resourcefulness is obviously key. And Yeah, I mean, totally. And it, it, it means that you don't have to do things like go on tour and you don't want to yeah. make albums just for the sake of making an album because you need to... You know, in Canada, it's like you need to, like, keep up a certain level of grant funding. So you have to tour X amount of days mm. per year and have X amount of followers. And it's like all of a sudden you're in this weird machine. It's a very particular that, lifestyle. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's also the antithesis of being creative. Like, some people might thrive under that type of pressure, but I certainly don't. And, like, I've seen it chew people up where it's like, yeah, like you're on the road when you don't want to, you're drinking too much, you don't feel like you're making an album because you're genuinely inspired to, you feel like you're making an album to because you have to do it to keep up a level of grant funding. And it's like, man, it's, yeah, it just kind of fucks you down. So I, I, I'm not interested in it. That's not to say that some people aren't very good at it and make wonderful art with it. It's just not necessarily a speed that I can yeah. get on board with. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, my, what I might try to attain is, uh, you know, the career that may have nothing to do with music, but the time and energy it takes, you know, if I can get to a certain point where I have enough left over where I can always continue with music, you know, what happens happens and maybe something unexpected could uh, could come my way. But if it doesn't, I, I'm year to year, I'm never in cr- a crisis or I don't have to travel all the time. Yeah. You know, it just seems like a better place to put myself. 100%. I, I'm assuming you have been heavily involved with music from like a pretty young age. Yeah. F- formal education and the whole uh, 
whole nine yards. Whole nine yards. Um, just briefly, when I was kind of uh, reading up and, and doing a little bit of homework, I said it seemed like you had a complicated relationship with uh, jazz, the idea of jazz. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of early. I don't know. That, that seemed like a, a fun place to kind of to uh, to explore. Like, um, what was kind of your musical identity in your formative years, and kind of what were you kind of expecting to to go into as as you um, became gifted in, in your instruments and your composition? A few things. Like, um, <clears throat> so there was always these two kind of parallel paths that were going on when I was gr- growing up. I was always studying jazz. Um, and I was studying it at a really wonderful program called the Humber College Community Jazz Program, where it was like mm. every week you'd have a lesson on your instrument, and then it also put you into a, a small jazz ensemble that was led by a professional. So they teach you how to improvise in a combo setting from the time I was like 11, which is crazy. Like, that's really a lucky thing to have. So all throughout high school, all throughout middle school, like I guess when I was in grade six, I was doing that. So, you know, like I got pretty good, like good enough to go to school for it and feel confident on my instrument. Um, Which was uh, saxophone. saxophone. Yeah. And then in great. Tenor saxophones. I started playing alto, then I switched to tenor, and then I learned how to play flute and clarinet kind of later in high school. Um, It was never just straightforward because, you know, I think my father recognized that I was really good but also recognized that I was really lazy. And, you know, he he really, like, was quite rigid with, like, how much I had to practice and, like, really putting on a lot of pressure on his end. And and was he a musician as well? Yeah, he's a piano player. He's really he, good. Okay. Um, yeah, so we had that background. Yeah, and, like, you know, he'd sit with me and practice. He'd, like, work through things with me. So I was always having, like, somebody especially when I was younger, like somebody correcting my mistakes as I went. And yeah, so like I could always play saxophone and improvise and like I was good, but it was like this thing that was like a lot of pressure as well. And then at a certain point I was like, yeah, I think I really like this. You know, I'm going to go to school for it. There's not really anything else that speaks to me. And then I remember like him saying, you know, I'm not going to bug you about this anymore. Like this is on you. You're going to school for it. Like, it's time that you just kind of did it, you know, like I'm not going to be the one to push you. And then I got really into it for myself, which I think was a Mm. special thing. Um, But I never composed, not until I was later in university. And then in high school though, what I was, my identity to answer your question was very much in the sort of punk and emo at a certain point ska like I was very much I played in a band in high school and we played gigs most weekends and you know we went all over kind of southern Ontario and people would come to us we'd book shows and whatever like church basements poultry barns um it was one of the weirder venues and like um libraries so it was like Classic that, uh, punk, teen punk scenario. 100%. It was like super DIY punk scene in Southern Ontario. There was wicked bands. Like we played with great bands. And that was my identity, 100%. And then I went to university and then it kind of switched. Like I, I became really into jazz and I thought that was my whole thing. And then I kind of just, at a certain point, I think I saw what, being a professional jazz musician was to most people and that I, I didn't think I was really good enough to be 
the best at jazz. I didn't certainly didn't like it enough. And um, I think from there, I started to actually figure out what it was. I figured out what it was I wanted to do. I think like from that existential crisis was when I actually started to critically think about what it really was that I liked and what, where, how I wanted to proceed. Mm. Yeah, because you're not, after a certain point, you're not on a, a track anymore. You know, the the teen band DIY Punk is a very specific scene. And then you might go on to the, the university jazz scene, but yeah. post-university, and if you're thinking about a career, it's like, where where am I taking the ship next, I guess? Totally. And I, and I think, too, like, you know, my father's parents were both Holocaust survivors, so and they were first-generation immigrants. Like, they came here after the mm-hmm. war. And I think that, like, <clears throat> because of that, there was a certain amount of importance placed on financial success. And, like, in what it meant to succeed in music, there was always a financial element tied to that, right? It was like, can you provide for your family? Are you making a living? And I think from, for a really long time, I was approaching music from a really, really practical place. Like it was, it was like, yeah, like I, I don't even think I was thinking about it very creatively. It was always about making a living. And I think after I kind of ditched jazz for a while, the way that morphed, I was like figuring out what it is I liked. And then I was really into pop music and I started playing in kind of like pop and indie pop bands. And I think in there, for sure in there was some idea that I was going to become famous and that my band was going to like quote unquote make it. And like, I mean, I believed in that for a long time, you know, like well into my late twenties. Was this uh Diana? Yeah, it was Diana. And, but Diana kind of had a bit of a moment when I was on tour with Destroyer. And I remember those guys saying like, just so you know, like this is a worthless industry and like fame is worthless and it's going to chew up and spit you out. So just like keep perspective, like do things because you like it. Uh, don't get bought it. Like don't get caught up in like what these people are telling you to do and what you have to do. Like be, like be true to yourselves. And I think I sort of did that, but also didn't. And I totally got, I mean, I fell into every fucking pothole that I could. <laughs> and then I don't think it was until early 30s that I think I really started to understand or feel that I was on a track that felt actually true to myself where like I was making decisions actually for myself and you know I I don't think I can ever remove a financial calculus from life like I think that's too embedded into me but I certainly these days I'm doing things because I want to do them and I I in, in that in in that calculus, there's nowhere in there is fame. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, life's short. Do you came into this in the first place because something about it spoke to you and some feeling of artistic satisfaction? So why would you uh, ever really want to give that up? For sure, and I, and I think it's like the exploratory nature of music and like playing with friends and like joking around and collaborating and like fucking dicking around endlessly on gear with gear and exploring new stuff like that is wonderful and writing music is wonderful and i think that like it for some reason took me a really long time to figure that out i think i was 
yeah, I was approaching music from a really weird place before, or just a place that was influenced by a lot of things that I've since maybe given up on or thought that they're not quite so important. I mean, you had your head in kind of so many different worlds, just based on what I'm hearing here with, uh, you know, from jazz to like, you know, 80s retro pop to... Yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh, it must have been really kind of, uh, you know, a long journey to really find out what that amalgamation of your influences and, and what you love the most and like what that would look like going forward. I mean, you, you, uh, you're an instrumental contributor to so many different groups. And I mean, what did that look like when things really kind of just finally fell into focus? Like you stopped touring as much or what kind of, uh, fell into place, would you say? That's a good question. Um, I think it was more just that I felt a confidence in myself that I didn't feel before. You know, I think I always would preface things that I did with like, uh, this is going to sound better when it's mixed or this is going to be, you know, like, wait till you hear it with block. I was always so scared of everything that I was doing. And mm. I think that it took, I don't know, it, it, it took a couple of things doing well. And maybe, I mean, I certainly like external validation helped. But then I think I realized that maybe I was self-sabotaging for sure. And not self-sabotaging, self-sabotaging, but like I was my own worst enemy for sure. And I think that it was... And were you experiencing this primarily through like your group Diana or what uh, facet of your career was? Yeah, I mean, there was... It was partially in Diana. I think that, you know, that group was three really strong personalities and at times that were totally not, like we weren't very out of sync with one another. And I think like one of the, especially the other, like one of the, the drummer and, sorry, the drummer and Diana, Kieran, one of my closest friends, current collaborators, like I really respect what he has to say so much. And I think he's such an amazing producer, but I think like I could sometimes get caught up in, his wake and I'd lose myself and second guess myself. Mm. And I think after our last album, we were all so burnt out and it, I had this space to kind of maybe do my own thing without him around. And I think I was kind of at the time really frustrated with him and I, and just this dynamic we'd gotten into. And then, yeah, like I think out of that, I was able to kind of find my own zone. But I will say this. This is sort of off topic. I don't know if that I even answered your question, but... I don't remember what the question was. I This is just all interesting. Okay, so. Shoot. So this is something I think about a lot, which is... Okay. So I, every now and then, people will reach out and say, you know, like, I really like your career trajectory. Like, can we talk about what... Like, do you, can, can we have a chat and you can just tell me about how things happened or, you know, how, um, what your experience was? Because for whatever reason, they want to pick my brain about that. And the part that I don't know about that I often struggle with is like, I look back on these years of like doing jobbing gigs and playing like jazz standards for cocktail parties where people weren't listening and, you know, like just doing these fucking wonked out gigs, like corporate functions and like, you know, like 
playing saxophone in a bar mitzvah while a DJ played in the background. Like, and I was like walking around the crowd. Like, I mean, this is like bottom of the barrel. I was gonna ask shit. where the klezmer came in. Oh man, no, no, it's not even klezmer. This is like ripping careless whisper. Like you're just like a, you're like a corny, uh, uh, you're like a parody of a saxophone player, and I. I always exactly okay, but imagine walking around like a five million dollar mansion while people eat hors d'oeuvres and like a fireworks display happens, and you know that the people spent a hundred thousand dollars on the party and you feel like a piece of shit. So, so I did that, I've done that a bunch of times, you know, different versions of it, and um. What I've been thinking about recently is like, as much as I hated it, like I also worked on cruise ships, playing in big bands. Like all of these experiences were so formative, and like, like I cherish them. I hate them, but I cherish them. It's like, it's like, uh, like knowing that I was in the shit or something. There, like that I paid my dues in this really fucked up way. Yeah, and knowing what yeah. I don't want to do and having experienced like like pretty to me like worst of the worst type gigs and like as much as I tell people to just like you know uh invest in themselves like do stuff that feels meaningful don't worry about the financial side of it focus on the creative like if you have to be a fucking barista or whatever like I'll say these things but in the back of my head I'm like but also like there's a lot to learn from doing these really awful gigs in music. And like, I don't know, I've been struggling with it because I've also been asked to come to back, come back to schools, like universities and give lectures or like one off. I would not call them lectures. It's a clinic or whatever, but kids will ask these questions and it's like, I value that awful experience. Like there's a certain pride in like spending two summers on a cruise ship, like hold up in a windowless air conditioned room practicing for four hours a day. Like I hated it and I was so depressed, but I also like, I like it. So I don't it's, know. It's man. part of who you are <laughs> as a weird. musician. I'm, I yeah, mean, it's, totally. It's also, it comes down to your perspective, having those experiences and come from a place of what can I learn from that? Or what, what have I learned about my relation to music or myself or, you know, you it, you can always tie it into something cool at the end if you just have the uh, the imagination for it. I guess absolutely. And I think you know the negative, your negative experiences inform your life choices just as much as the positive ones. But I think for I I did a lot of bad ones for a long time. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a lot of stories there. Yeah. Wow. So you've uh, toured with bands and your own band and then do you feel like your solo work is like your calling card as who you are as a musician these uh past couple albums in the ep you've done under your own name is that like, like yeah thesis statement i don't know about thesis statement but i think calling card is a good word i think you know the opportunities that have come about from those records um have informed the last bunch of years of my life in such a humongous way you know like the movies I've been asked to score the things that I've been asked to be involved in you know like the albums that I've been asked to been on and help produce like 
yeah, it's been pretty special and like one something that I never saw coming, you know, like it took I think a bunch of people believing in me and telling me to do it because I don't think I had the confidence to do it myself. And then once mm. things started snowballing, I think yeah, like it, it it's really helped just inform the last 5 years of my life, 3 4 years of my life or whatever it's been in such an amazing way. Like I yeah, it's been pretty amazing. I I I I must say I feel quite blessed that they've not that they've done well financially, but creatively. Like, yeah, I'm I'm fucking stoked. It's been wonderful. And it's it's such a uh, you know, ambient is always kind of uh there's a lot of ways to not quite do it effectively. Mm-hmm. Like there's too little in it. There's it's too abrasive. I mean, it's it's all taste, but yeah, it's 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 not challenging enough. It's too challenging. Like mm-hmm. your your sense of how to put together a soundscape and the amount of kind of stimuli in there is this perfect balance of uh, it's working on a lot of levels. Like it, it can oh. really be kind of a, a trance like state or be very uh, impressionistic and almost kind of you know evoke like a, a lot of like mental imagery. It's very like very colorful, but then it's it's got the organic kind of grounding and the um, all the the melodic touches. So it's thanks. Yeah, yeah. I w- it's, it definitely warrants a lot of listens. I mean, I will say this. You know, I think one of my strengths is knowing my limitations, and with all these albums, you know, look, I've I've produced them and I've curated them, but what my limitations are is that like you know like i i can do certain things but i know that what that music needs to be interesting to me like i think there's people who listen to a drone for an hour and be satisfied i'm not that person like i think i need much more stimulus in music and like bits and bops that i that take me out you do very moment to moment kind of uh yeah or or there's like a there's like a overarching vibe but then there's little like elements you can grab onto and it's like a big part of it is just curating really good players you know and that's actually something that I learned from Dan from Destroyer which is like he I mean I think I've said this before in other interviews but it's like he does not micromanage that band what he does is he very intentionally curates the players who he asks so that it's like, I like what you do and I want you to know that I like what you do and I want you to feel free to just like do you on a record, on a performance, whatever it might be. So you feel valued, right? Like you're not feeling micromanaged and like um, edited. So Mm. I took that with my albums and I was just like, okay, like I do not want to like, I might give a production note, like something stupid, like, you know, like I want you to play this fucking take, like you're walking on the moon, like, or something dumb, you know, like like airier, sparser. I want you to like, whatever it might be. But then for the most part, it's just like, go like you do you and then I'll edit it down afterwards but like I want you to feel completely uninhibited and then I think that is what gets the best results is just that like I'll have some sort of a vibe set up that I dig but then in order for it to be good I think it needs other players to play on it and those other players have to feel free to do what they want to do wow 
Yeah, just in my kind of uh, experience, somewhat recently working with like a drummer or a guitarist to kind of fill out the roles of certain songs that I mm-hmm. can't do myself, it's when you know that it's going to click, you really, you can you can tell. Yeah. And it, you're like, you know, you go from zero to like 95% of the way there. And then any other kind of notes or direction is just, yeah, just those little kind of fine tuning details at the end. Totally. And really I mean, kind of bring it all home. The other thing too is like, you know, and I think this is what I was talking about with my community here is like, I play with these people where it's like, they're coming up with shit that I could not have come up with in one trillion years. If you sat me down forever, I would not. They have... speak a totally different language. Yeah, they're just prom- they're coming at harmony. They're coming at melody from such a different place that I respect. So it's like, it's not even like the things that things click. It's like that I they elevate it to this point where I'm like, God damn, I didn't even know it could be that, you know? And that's when it feels the most exciting to me is like, you'll hear a take and you're just floored at what's happening. Wow. And it's not just yours anymore. It's kind of out of your control in a a good way. In the best way. And, you know, and I think that, like, sometimes afterwards I'll have to rein it in because I'll get caught up in it and just say, like, go more, more, more. And then listen to it later and it's like, oh, right. Like, I think there needs to be more space. But in the moment, I think feeling like they don't have to rein it in is what makes it enjoyable to play on. At least that's what it makes. That's what feels enjoyable to me when it happens so i feel like maybe they're in the same boat Mm. yeah no now i'm i've been working a lot by myself recently on (laughs) on some newer tracks but now i'm wanting to to bring even though quarantine uh will kind of prevent me from doing that in person (laughs) yeah virtually bring bring people into the fold again do it i mean reach out to somebody who seems like totally inaccessible you know like maybe they'll say yes who knows yeah yeah, I'm, I'm finding that uh, doing this podcast, too, it's always fun when I can um, get a guest I hadn't maybe expected to uh, to lend me their time. Or Yeah, it's it's always cool when you can just... Uh, music is really this um, this common language. Totally. And music, musicians are egomaniacs who love to talk <laughs> about themselves. So, you know, they're going to always say themselves yes. Themselves and then music as a, a close second. Those can exactly. Go, go for hours on both topics. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I do miss collaboration. It's, uh, I mean, you, you've had, uh, that experience in so many different kind of formations just with all the, the groups you've played with. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously your, your calling card, your, your solo work is kind of, it's going to sit at the top, but are, are there any other kind of looking back, do you have like particularly fulfilling points of your music career artistically like uh with particular projects or yeah what's the highlight reel you know i think the first two diana albums are for sure you know i think those were real for for two different reasons like the first one because it was the first thing in my life i did for myself where i wasn't trying to be overly derivative i was just like expressing the music we wrote was like hard work plus we just really liked what we were doing. Like it felt true to ourselves. And that was is, never is that some kaput. No, that, so that's destroyer. Diana was an album called, Oh, I thought uh, you said Dan. I'm getting all turned around. Oh here. no, no, no. I mean, it's very similar, but, uh, Diana. And then yeah. the second album, because it was the hardest thing I ever did. Like we just worked so bloody hard. Yeah, and yeah. it was also like, you know, 
pretty fraught, you know. So at the end of it, I listen to it now, and I'm like, I'm stoked that we did it. And then Kaput, too. I think Kaput because it was what kind of made me um, fall back in love with playing the saxophone. I think I'd been so bummed on the sax for so long, and I thought that like I almost treated like soloing as if it was like a dirty word. You know, like it was just this thing that was so... I gotten so bummed and it had become so um, problematic for me or whatever. Like I just didn't, I wasn't approaching it from a good place. And I think Dan and that band and that album kind of taught me that the saxophone was like beautiful and part of who I was and Super something fun. Yeah, it's fun. And it was like something that I really could do well that I loved to do that I'd forgotten about. And I think it kind of reintroduced me to it in a way that um i needed at the time awesome well i guess that kind of brings us to where you are kind of planning to go from here and and what you're you're doing now that you're particularly excited about and what hasn't been too disrupted by the whole uh you know pandemic paradigm shift you know there's a few things so i'm about to release a cover that i do you know eric Satie, the classical composer yeah he has that very famous piece gymnopedie number one that's That's the one i love that piece yeah gorgeous so i did a cover of that recently with my friend drew that drew plays strings and we did this like whole intro with a lot of tape manipulation and then the idea behind it was sort of like so Drew told me this story about when Satie performed the piece for the first time. He got all of like Paris's like music critics and elite into this room. There was a big cocktail party with a piano player playing. And then off to the side was this concert hall. And at the end of it, sorry, like, so midway through cocktails, everyone moves over to the concert hall portion of the night where like his new works are going to be performed. They all take their seats. Satie gets up on stage, there's the piano behind him, and he says... The new works that I wrote, the piano player was playing during cocktails. So thank you and have a good night. Like, which kind of makes him the original inventor of like the concept behind ambient music, in my opinion. You know, it's like music as like kind of like a like the function doesn't have to be purely like artistic. It can be functional. Like it can be background music. It doesn't have to be the forefront. So we wrote this piece that I wanted to make it feel like this really woozy, opiumy, like Paris in the 1800s, but then also wanted to make it feel like a jobbing gig, like that lonely fucking feeling of playing where everyone's talking over you, even though you're, what you're doing is super meaningful. You want to like, bottle you know, that feeling? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think this piece achieves that. Like, it's really good, I think. And it's weird. Like, it's a really, it's a interesting take on that piece. It feels new to me anyway, which is always a good thing. Like if I trust my gut and it feels exciting and new, that's always good. So um, so I did that. And then I made a full-length album with my friends Nicholas Kurgovich and Chris Harris. And Nick toured with Destroyer um, a couple of years ago and with Diana actually, like opening. But he's just out of this world. And we wrote we wrote a full-length album with words i produced it like i wrote the music and chris wrote the music and nick wrote all the lyrics and i think it's one of the best things i've ever done so that's coming Mm -hmm. out on um e-day fix records uh in the fall and it's getting mastered tomorrow actually and then yeah i think those are the two big ones and then i 
I have to start working on my next um, full length. I have a, I have what I consider to be a very good idea for it, and it involves an accompanying podcast. <laughs> Speaking of podcasts, but uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a pretty major undertaking with a lot of journalism involved, and that is what's going to be next for me. That's the next really kind of big thing besides like some movies that I'm working on. But I think that album's going to take me a bunch of months to do like maybe half a year because I think it's going to involve a solid couple months of interviews. And then from there I have to like figure out what the album is going to be tone wise, but it's all very dependent on these interviews. Wow. Let me know if you need any help setting up the uh, podcast, the Absolutely. technical side of that. Get your RSS feed going. <laughs> I would love that. Um, well, Joseph, this has been an amazing discussion. I, I feel like we could just keep going and going. Um, Absolutely. I promised my girlfriend we watched that last episode of Westworld. So. I'm due for the Jordan documentary, so we're in the same boat. Oh, yeah, I've never really been a basketball guy, but I feel like something about that I should check it out. I mean, you, I don't even think you have to be a basketball guy to appreciate it, but thank you for asking me to be a part of this. It was really a nice time, and I hope I didn't ramble for too long. Oh, no, this has been a blast. Okay, cool. I had a great time, too. All right, I'm back. So that was Joseph Shabison. The guy was a real hoot. Um, so glad we, uh, we were able to make that happen. I honestly do feel like I could take in his stories for, for hours. I'll, I'll have to have him back on sometime. Um, so we're winding up right about now. I'm going to play you a recent track of his called Broken Hearted Coda. Again, that is from the Anne EP. Uh, as you heard him say, he's got a lot of other stuff in the works coming up. So just, um, put them on your radar, uh, go over to Bandcamp. Or if you're more into streaming, he is of course on all the uh, usual platforms. Anyway, Joseph Shabison awesome guy. Uh, let's end this thing with Brokenhearted Coda.